0: Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, Brett. How are you today? I'm well. Yourself? I'm great, except that we're recording this from separate locations. So I thought we might start this one off with another communication starter. Where's your happiest place?
1: I mean, I could give the candy, you know, so that my, when my family, if they ever listen yeah. to this, I'd say with them. No family, um, yeah, no family. But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to give a, g- a general instead of a specific, and that would be on a trail in the mountains.
0: Excellent, excellent. How about you? My, What's my, your a place? place on earth? Mine would be similar, the but the ocean. Yeah, so you're a mountain and I'm an ocean. No surprise to really anyone that knows us. <laughs> All right. no, not at all. Let's well, let's get to I want to ask our guest the same question too. But our guest today is Evan Schwartz. Evan is the CEO and founder of Schwartz, Conroy and Hack PC. It's a New York City-based law firm specializing in insurance recovery claims and complex litigation. Early in his legal career, Evan worked as a law clerk at the New York Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in the state of New York. And he previously represented insurance companies, defending them against claims and lawsuits nationwide, but now he's on the other side. Now he manages claims and lawsuits against insurance companies nationwide, ensuring that policyholders receive their promised benefits. And alongside his legal practice, Evan is also dedicated to teaching. He is an adjunct professor of insurance Mm -hmm. law at Toro Law Center. And he frequently delivers lectures to lawyers and other groups on topics related to insurance claims and litigation. He resided until recently in New York City with his adult children, but we'll hear more about that. Welcome, Evan. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Evan, before we start, where is your happy place?
2: So, similar to Brett, it would probably be either a trail in somewhere amazing or... On a golf course overlooking some spectacular water from an elevation. Like Pebble Beach? Yeah, I was um, going to say Pebble um, Beach comes What I was going to yeah. say is last year I went to Scotland and Ireland and I played courses at both and there was a lot of, of that, but one of them was called Old Head, which is on a 300 foot elevated peninsula alone mm-hmm. out in the Irish Sea. And it was just beyond, beyond amazing. Everywhere you turned. Awesome. I like that. So Pebble Beach qualifies.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I think, so you left New York in the last two years after a lifetime, basically, right? Where are you now? Yes.
2: I grew up on Long Island and then my last 10 years was in Manhattan. Now I'm in Greensboro, North Carolina, since March of 2022.
0: And and how does a New York City boy find his way to North Carolina?
2: A good Tar Heel woman. <laughs> And her kids were younger than mine, and it made sense for us to be here, even though I'm g- coming back and forth to New York pretty regularly. Our primary residence is now here in North Carolina. But you're still practicing
0: in New York? Is your primary practice in you know New York?
2: Yes. Okay.
0: And and the firm, is the firm back, are you guys in person in New York City, or what's happening with the firm?
2: Um, in New York City, It's it's a... It's a Regis-type chair. It's called Emerge 212. It's on 6th Avenue. I actually had an office there until COVID, but most of my staff and lawyers, most of them are on Long Island in Garden City, where the office, where my practice was started a long, 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 long time ago. So we always had presence in the city. Now we use Emerge 212, which is an SL Green building, 60,000 square feet of space. All we do is pay for the right to use the office. And then anytime we do use the office, it's a la carte. You just pay by the hour for conference rooms or meeting space or whatever you need.
0: Nice. Nice. So why don't we step back and have so you you started out your practice first as a law clerk, but then you practice in insurance defense, which I think a lot of lawyers do. Can you can can you sort of explain what that means? You know, everyone here is, oh I'm in insurance defense, but I think it can mean a lot of things, right?
2: So insurance defense is a overbroad moniker. It really doesn't cover what I do. Insurance defense is really general liability defense. It's mostly across the country, the automobile or homeowners insurance companies hiring law firms to defend their insureds in property damage and personal injury cases. That's what the typical meaning of insurance defense is. So the actual title insurance defense, it actually isn't insurance defense, it's actually liability defense where the law firm doing the defense work is hired by State Farm or Allstate or Geico or, right. you know, one of the large property and casualty insurance companies and they get out, you know, 100, 200, 500 cases, bunch of slip and falls, a bunch of car accidents, maybe some, you know, maybe some labor law cases, some construction stuff, whatever. But that's what insurance defense is. When you're in the insurance recovery space, the firms that do insurance recovery defense or insurance recovery for policyholders like me, that's not what insurance defense typically means. And the way I got into it was my summer associate job was at the largest law firm, which is still the largest law firm on Long Island, called Rifkin Radler. And they defend insurance companies and have defended insurance companies in insurance recovery matters for a very, very long time. And that is their major identity. So I was a summer associate there. And then when I got hired by the New York Court of Appeals, they knew that when I left, I was going to go back to that law firm and be doing that. So when I was at the Court of Appeals, any of the cases that involved insurance issues got sent over to me. And then when I went to that firm, I defended insurance companies in the cases I just described, the the coverage issues related to those, not the liability issues. And then also huge environmental insurance recovery cases was a big part of my job. So back in, in the 60s and the 70s until 1980, when the environment was getting more and more poisoned and You know, speaking of New York, we had something called Love Canal up in in the Buffalo area where a whole bunch of people were poisoned by environmental contamination in the water. As a result of all those situations, Congress rushed in and passed the Superfund statute in 1980. It's otherwise known as CERCLA for anyone that still remembers it, but most people know it as a Superfund statute. And when that happened and government started knocking on the door of all the people— that dump stuff in landfills or were manufacturing on their own sites or manufacturing, uh, renting somewhere in manufacturing, it didn't matter. But all of the contamination, the government could knock on your door and say, hey, you know, Smith and Company, you're responsible for investigating the extent of the contamination that emanated from that piece of property where you dumped your stuff or where you were manufacturing and then share in the cost of the cleanup and you're jointly and severally liable for it. So if everybody else has no money, but you're a well-heeled company, you got to pay for it. And at that time, the lawyers representing them, probably their in-house lawyer said, Hmm, I wonder if this is covered by our insurance policies. And that turned into a multi-billion dollar war between corporations and insurance companies that went on for a good 20 years. So I was involved to a large extent in defending the insurance companies in those cleanup litigations, the investigation and remediation, and they were litigated all over the country. And every state had its own set of environmental cleanup laws that was similar to the federal Superfund law and all of the general liability policies, because back then you didn't have environmental policies, you just had general liability policies. They didn't have any exclusions for pollution. And so the battle was you were polluting these sites for years and you never told us about it, late notice, or this wasn't an accident, it was intentional conduct. You intentionally allowed the groundwater and the soil to be contaminated. And so all over the country, there was a battle. And then after that, policy started changing. So, first there was a qualified pollution exclusion. And every state in the country had litigation over what the qualified pollution exclusion meant. Then there was an absolute pollution exclusion. And now they're they're very much excluded from our general liability policy. And if you want coverage, you have to buy an environmental insurance liability policy. It's a specialty policy. I will tell you there was a decent amount of litigation over H1N1 when it came out, the virus, which led to Viral exclusions, which is why COVID, for the most part, was not covered under general liability policies. Although there's also an issue under those policies called direct physical loss, which means you had to have direct physical loss to property, and a virus didn't cause, according to the courts, direct physical loss. So COVID was basically not covered under any general liability policies, and that's still being litigated. But the vast majority of courts said no coverage. So anyway. I grew up on an, in, an environmental contamination coverage and some general liability coverage issues. And then I left that firm, opened up my own practice for two years, as some people say, hung out a shingle. Some people say practice door law, whatever walked in the door. Hmm. And I had met an attorney at Rifkin Rather who also went out on his own. And two years later, in, in, in January of 1996, we formed our firm. And in January 96, we had a little Yellow Pages ad that basically said, if your claim's under investigation or your claims been denied, call us. And that piece of advertising was sort of the beginning of a niche practice area that I developed during that timeframe and still have to today, which is professionals and high-income earners in long-term disability claims and litigation. So the target market for that is mostly doctors, lawyers, CPAs, financial professionals, high wage earners at corporations, and other people in the healthcare industry are still targets for those types of those policies. And my firm to this day still has a sub niche in insurance recovery and representing those people in both claims and lawsuits against insurance companies.
1: Wow. Just jump in for a second. You switched sides, as some may say, right? From typically the defense side in either liability or insurance coverage to plaintiff side, right? In pursuing liability and pursuing insurance coverage. How did you find that transition? Well, why did you make that transition? And then how did you find that transition?
2: So, two years I solo practiced and I did everything under the sun. I did divorce, real estate, wills, business litigation, and some insurance recovery. And I got to know my partner who was on his own as well a little bit better. But when we merged, we both agreed that we wanted to have a law firm where we practiced in the same areas of law so that we would get the benefit of collaboration. And we both agreed on the practice areas, one being insurance recovery for policyholders. And the reason we chose policyholders is we didn't think insurance companies would even want to hire us because we were two guys, you know, we're two solo practices that are merging and we don't have the chops, the size, the reputation, the relationships to go out and land some large insurer and pick up a boatload of files, right? So that was one thing. And we also thought that there was a lot more competition on that side than there was on the policyholder side anyway. And both of us were already doing some work. My ex-partner Was doing a lot more of it at the time than I was, only because he had the luxury of a a wife that was earning a good living and I didn't. So I had to take everything that walked in the door and he was being a little more selective. But we both agreed that we wanted to do that for those reasons. And we liked complex business litigation because both of us, the more complicated, the more interesting it was, the more we wanted it. The more there was a big firm on the other side where it was going to be challenging and Good combat, we were all about it. Intellectually stimulating and slaying the giant was fun. That's kind of why we
0: did it. It's interesting that what you said about when you guys formed your firm that you wanted to, you wanted the benefit of collaboration. So you wanted to practice in the same areas. I think sort of the traditional mindset is to find someone who doesn't do what you do and do, you know, and have the benefit of multiple practice areas, but you guys combine. I'm curious, can you? speak more to that?
2: Yes. And I think the practice of law, especially when you're doing complex work, that collaboration and the thought process of discussion is critical, that the best representation on complex matters is collaborative representation. That's what, that, you know, law is not deductive. It's inductive reasoning and it requires creative thinking. And a lot of times those discussions between Lawyers who are smart and practicing in the same space, the ideas that can be created through those collaborative discussions and that working together has, in my career, been invaluable. And it's funny because a couple of times in my career, we've been hired by, you know, sometimes I will defend a liability case because someone will come to me, their case isn't being covered, right? So the law firm gets sued for legal malpractice they send it to their insurance company, their legal malpractice or E&O carrier. The carrier denies the claim. Now they have to go hire a law firm to defend the case and they have to deal with the coverage if there is a covered claim or not. So a lot of times we'll wind up representing both. We'll defend the underlying case and we'll go after the insurance coverage. The reason I say that is sometimes we'll get hired by insurance companies through relationships we have to defend somebody because there's a conflict and the we're, we have a relationship with the law firm or the client or whatever. And they're like, please, please defend us. And it's a long way to tell a short story, except I've gotten hired a couple of times by insurance companies and they have such strict billing rules. Like one of the things you can't do is you can't have a conversation with another lawyer and bill them for it. <laughs> and I was like, what? You know, and and you're, you're thinking, you know, that's how sometimes the best outcome occurs, That's where the wind can come in, that thinking. And here's the insurance company payment guidelines that specifically forbid it, specifically will pay for it.
0: They don't want to pay for duplication of efforts, right? Is that the idea for for, them? Right.
2: As As if you're going to talk about every single solitary thing you do, which is not what we do at my practice. And I'll tell you right now, it's eight lawyers and we still all collaborate. So- I don't have anybody in my firm who says that's not, I can't do that because it's outside of my scope. I, I, there's one exception to that my, my one partner Conroy is doing federal criminal defense in the healthcare fraud space. And that is a very, very niche thing. Because of all the healthcare fraud yet, he had, he had a lot of prior criminal experience. And then we do a lot of healthcare fraud litigation because there's a lot of healthcare fraud that it emanates from third-party payers, which primarily, if it's not the government, like Medicare, Medicaid, it's insurance companies. So investigations and indictments flow from a lot of that. So he has this niche, 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 niche in the federal criminal space that's only in the healthcare fraud. So I work with him on those a little bit, but nobody else in the firm really does. But everything else is collaborative.
1: And, you know, as our listener would know, we subscribe to the whole collaboration theory. Jeff and I both have similar practices when we came together. I was more heavily in the litigation side, Jeff more heavily on the restructuring New York side, though we both did both sides. And the collaboration is certainly key. But even as you you just said, in terms of that one partner does health practices in the healthcare criminal side, there's still an ability to collaborate On various issues, even if it's not down to the minutia of, you know, the particular crimes or the particular issues there. And there's still an ability to collaborate. And I always find that, you know, you you mentioned the, the insurance companies and, you know, there's always these large organizations that have these billing guidelines and they don't want you to collaborate. And they just, you know, I understand double billing and I understand all of that and I get it, but I always sort of put my head back a little bit when, when people put guidelines in place where they, you know, it, it's sort of anti-collaboration because to me, like you said, collaboration to, you know, to us uh, as a firm, collaboration is key. And that's how you get to the right spot for your clients or the best spot, you know, for your clients.
2: Right. And I'm not saying that it's mandatory in every practice area of the law, and I'm not here to overpromote what I do or or disparage what anyone else does in the law, but there are certain things where I think collaboration is essential that may not be as essential in a more cookie cutter practice, put it that way. There's no cookie cutter about my firm. I mean, there are some things that are repetitive, but they're 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 repetitive in the nature of what we do. They're not rep- otherwise repetitive and it's a problem for my practice in a sense because I can't hire any young lawyers. They collapse at my firm because I can't give them a steady diet of these 20 cases that are going to be the same where they can learn how to handle those types of 20 cases. Instead, you know, it's a federal litigation in Alaska, a state litigation upstate New York, you know, a corporate insurance recovery case here, a disability claim here. A rescission case here are they, and they're just and they're all disparate and so if I don't have a reasonably sophisticated person the pressure they just can't deal with it and those people need collaboration because they're working on all these different matters it's not the right and I mean they're not drastically different per se but they they are different they're different venues they're different questions I mean you know if you get in the long-term disability space, And you've got to litigate one of these cases and you've got a client with private policies and then policies that are group policies that they got through their employer that may or may not be governed by ERISA. And are you going to be in federal court? Which federal court are you going to be in? Where was the policy issue? Choice of law, medical support, financial support. It's this little case that turns out to be super freaking complicated, right? And that one case, throwing a couple of corporate litigations along with that and some rescission and some healthcare fraud, and somebody's like, let hey, the record reflect
0: that he made a face with his head exploding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just for our listeners. They, yeah. The young,
2: the young associates lose all their confidence, they freeze, and they're gone.
0: Yeah. I would think that type of diverse practice would be, you know, the most interesting for young lawyers because who wants to do the same thing over and over? I think people get bored from that. In fact, isn't that the common a common theme in the insurance defense? In the traditional insurance defense area?
2: Well, yes, but to have to learn those things and perform under pressure without a really significant and intense level of supervision can be very, very daunting to a young lawyer. Right. Like they have to get more of their chops before they can necessarily want to attack that level of complexity. But yes, I live for that level of complexity and, and my partners and my... My lawyers are comfortable with it. One of my partners, Matt Conroy, and I live for it. My partner, Michael, has more of the individual insurance recovery space than the corporate, but he, le- he loves it too. So it's, yeah. a, it's almost like you have the right people on your team to like it because a lot of people don't. They don't want that pressure. They don't want, you know, yes, it's intellectually stimulating, but it creates a lot of pressure to not feel like you're making a mistake, not being effective. And yeah. Insurance defense, it can be boring. Real estate closings can be boring. Wills can be boring, but they also can be interesting depending on how you're doing them and who you are. I found that type of work not to be like doing a real estate closing to me. And I have my stepmom was a great real estate lawyer. She's retired now and she loved every minute of it. But I did not like the little internal fights over the personal property in the house and the. You know the little things. I, I felt like I wanted to fight over something that, where there was so much more money at stake and so much more complexity to it. So for me, I well, I would get bored doing that. Would you say that insurance defense
0: is a good? training ground for litigators in your practice or, or elsewhere? Because I think a lot of lawyers, especially, you know, you know, we have some listeners who are, you know, and law students and coming out. They're trying to evaluate what practice area. And there tend to be a lot of insurance defense jobs out there because they're such they're high volume jobs. But what's your, what's your view on, are they a good, you know, starting point for young litigators?
2: Well, first of all, it depends on where you get your job and how sophisticated they are if you're going to get that job, because there's a lot of them out there and you're not going to have a panoply of interesting liability cases, number one, and number two, you're not going to be in an office where there are some higher level people that are willing to train you in, you know, pre-trial litigation and trial techniques. I would say you're at a place where maybe you're in there for a year or two, and then you've got to move on in my view. But, but it depends on the office. I have an attorney that works for me now that had a lot of years in general liability defense, but some of it was medical, some of it was auto, some of it was slip and fall. And he's pretty sophisticated because he did some sophisticated work in that space. I work with a firm on Long Island where they do a lot of professional liability, architects and engineers, lawyers, other things. And they're they're a pretty sophisticated firm. So that work seems to me, and, and I talk to the partners there about a lot of cases and their cases are kind of interesting. Right. But if every day of your life, it's how fast were you going as you approached the intersection? Did you see the stop sign? Did you not see the stop sign? Did you see the traffic light? Was it turning red? You know, if that's all you're doing all day long, that's probably going to get old. And you could learn some basics about litigating quickly, but I would say that's not a long-term proposition unless you're going to wind up picking up Allstate and State Farm as your client and become a partner or build your own practice. And even that I never liked because I didn't like being dependent on a large client for all of my work. I feel even though I'm a retail shop unemployed to my next client, as we like to say, I feel safer that way because I can pick up any case or lose any case and it's not going to dramatically affect the income of the firm or my life. So
1: it's funny how our practices although different areas really have very similar issues. We have, you know, sophisticated issues, we have high pressure stuff. I mean, there's a lot of what we do is have those issues as well. Where have you found success in recruiting lawyers to your firm? Not specific firms you go to, but, but where have you seen the greatest success in terms of bringing those lawyers in that can handle the pressure, can handle the sophistication? the matters you guys handle
2: i don't have a great answer and (laughs) even my answer itself is you know luck is where preparation meets opportunity right you always have to be recruiting and you always have to have your eyes open we have gotten so i'm just thinking about my own lawyers i have two lawyers that work for me they've been working with me for i hired them in 2000 so they've been working with me for 23 years my ex-partner and i Couldn't decide between either of them. We got resumes from the law school that that I graduated from on Long Island. We hired them both at the same time, and they're still with me. Okay, that's one thing. One of my partners was a guy that serendipitously through work, he and I wound up on opposite sides of many things, and then his life changed, and an opportunity came, and I snapped him up, and then he grew with the firm and became a partner. He had a woman who worked for him for years. She joined the firm. So that covers, out of eight lawyers, that's five of us. Two of, two of the lawyers, one was a put out ads. Just got lucky, and he's great. Another one was, we hired a paralegal, and she worked for a firm where this lawyer worked for, and she, she recommended him. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So, only one of the attorneys out of all of my eight attorneys came through, and indeed, or a law crossing, or whatever you want to call it, all the other attorneys came through some interesting relationship. Yeah. And even when you don't need talent, I feel like you need to be on the hunt for talent, and you need to make sure that your staff is on the hunt for talent too.
0: Great. Yeah. yeah. That I agree. My an answer. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And we we kind of adopt that approach as well. You kind of always have to be recruiting. And our approach is when a good player becomes available, you grab them. And one other thing you said that resonated with me is that it's about relationships. And relationships are the key not only to, you know, recruiting for you, but also to growing your practice and maintaining a practice. You gotta maintain relationships. So good stuff. A lot of parallels. I've enjoyed this, Evan, and if you're listening to this and you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share the show, leave us a review. Subscribing to the show and leaving a review will help others find the show and help us grow and devote more time to producing better content for you. Thank you, Evan. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Nelson. Good night. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Jeff.
2: It's a lot of fun to chat about what we do in whatever context we get to chat about it. And I was pleased and privileged to do it.
0: Yeah, it was great. Great to have you. Thanks, Evan. For more information on this show and other resources, visit fastamron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at fastamron.